So first of all, a thank you to the organisers for inviting me to speak to you today. It really is a privilege to be here. And I will really try and stick to my 15 minutes. But before I, I launch into the topic of peace, reconciliation and positive identities, I want to say a little bit about where I'm speaking from on this issue. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about myself, about Corrie Mela, my organisation, and about the specific projects that I've been involved in that will inform my perspectives. Um, the starting point for me is to say I'm, I'm from Northern Ireland. I am a product of a deeply divided and contested society. Uh, I'm a product of a schooling system that was and still is largely segregated along religious lines. I come from a town with a largely Protestant, Unionist and British identity. So growing up, my access to diversity was limited. Uh, but thanks to some luck and my parents' involvement in Corrymeela, who I later go on to work for, I had access to meet people, to meet different people from lots of different backgrounds and had opportunities a lot of my friends did not. So I can't divorce that reality from how I understand the issue of identity and positive identities. And I wonder how positive my identity is given these circumstances. But luckily for me, I've had opportunities as an adult to meet people from a range of backgrounds. Um, however, I suppose what I'm saying should act as somewhat of a health warning. I am not outside of, of division, uh, of sectarianism, of all those things. Um, so take that as a, as a warning. Um, my organisation, so I work for the Corrymeela community. It was founded in 1965 um, by the Reverend Ray Davey and a group of young students from the Presbyterian Chaplaincy at Queen's University in Belfast. Ray had been a, a prisoner of war in Dresden uh, during the Second World War and as horrific as that experience was, it inspired in him the idea of what would it be like to create an inclusive community back in Ireland. So 20 years later, uh, Ray and a group of young students purchased, um, you can't really see in this photograph so well, but this is um, the RSC. We're perched on a, on a cliff here, and this is our residential centre. So they bought it for about £7,000 in 1965, um, begged, borrowed and perhaps stole some of the money <laughs> to get that. Uh, and so the Corrymeela community was formed, and very quickly it became an ecumenical community. Um, Protestants and Catholics, really inspired by the, the European movement of reconstruction and repair that was happening around that time. But <clears throat> there was no blueprint, there was no sophisticated peace building theory, it was just an expanding group of people trying to make a different, more inclusive society. And then the troubles arrived later, uh, and that really begins to shape the work uh, and to try and be a witness to a different possibility, to the possibility that we could live together. Uh, and so a lot of our work happens at our residential centre, some of it happens out in the community. We have a huge array of volunteers, volunteers at the lifeblood of our work. Um, and all this is still reflected today in our mission statement, which is to transform division through human encounter. Our work is really focused on four main themes, um, addressing sectarianism, tackling marginalisation, public theology and legacies of conflict. Um, and our work is extremely diverse in terms of who we work with. So 
Um, last week we had 60 year 8 pupils from an interface area in Belfast, that's an area where Catholics and Protestants live near a peace wall. Um, this week we have a group of um, Palestinians and Egyptians with us. So it's very, very diverse. Uh, youth, schools, communities, churches, international uh, organisations as well. So a little bit about the, the work that I manage. Facing our history, shaping the future. I, by the way, when I say manage, it sounds very grand. Manage really means do all the work as well. And, um, we, we have three main projects uh, facing our history, shaping the future. Michelle presented yesterday beautifully on, on facing history and ourselves and that approach. So I'm not going to replicate. Um, but through that project, we've worked with about 500 educators from around 70% of post-primary schools in Northern Ireland. Uh, we've engaged with over 1,000 young people largely in cross-community programs at our centre in Ballycastle. The second uh, aspect, it's had about 30 names, so I went for the Heritage Project. Um, and Again, it's a partnership project with our two universities, Ulster and Queen's, with the archaeologists there, and two of our local authorities. And we explore contested heritage. Our main case study is the Ulster plantations, so that kind of uh, process of colonisation in the early 1600s. Um, and we use sites that are still there, still in the landscape. We use material culture, uh, and we're really exploring a lot of new evidence that's still emerging about this period um, from the archaeology. But most importantly, we're working with local communities who wouldn't have access to that information, and we're asking the question, does any of this matter? What does it matter for today? And the, the last project, um, we talked, somebody mentioned about anniversaries or centenaries earlier. Belfast in the world, 1918 to 21, marking a decade of, uh, of centenaries. And that project is Belfast focused, with largely marginalised communities exploring this decade. So if you're unfamiliar, between 1912 and 1922 uh, is a real period of change and transition in, in Ireland, in Britain as well, and arguably in Europe. Um, and you have a number of seminal events that have really shaped the identities of, of people since. And so what we're doing is exploring those events with communities who often won't have explored the whole decade before. Um, one of our issues is we tend to selectively remember historical events and disregard the rest. So this is about exploring that whole, uh, that whole decade. Now, um, we're fast approaching in, in 2020, between 2020 and 2022, the partition of Ireland. And you can imagine that's an extremely difficult history to get into through Brexit on top of that, and it's a really difficult history. So in a world where Brexit had never happened and we were all coasting along merrily, this was going to be hard enough as it is. But when you um, create a situation where the border comes back into sharp focus, it's even more difficult. So on with the brief. My question, how do you reconcile a very recent difficult past, one which is still very present in the minds of survivors and perpetrators alive today? So, um, the first thing is a quote from a guy that was involved in Karimela, uh, a scholar from Queen's University called Frank Wright. And Frank said, it is often said that part of the trouble in Northern Ireland is that we will not forget our history. The real difficulty is that our versions of history are in fact ways of explaining our feelings and especially our fears in everyday life. New histories will take root beyond academic settings 
only if they grow out of new relationships which give them meaning. If we explore our histories together with people whose experience is the opposite side of the deterrence relationship, then new histories may eventually flourish. The deterrence relationship was how Frank described the Catholic-Protestant relationship. So to be clear on the problem, the past isn't in the past. It's a lived reality on a daily basis for many people, often in unconscious ways, making it all the harder to address. Um, and it's not just a question of whether you explore a difficult history, but who you explore it with. Who you explore it with. But if we do that, there are reconciling possibilities. So all is not gloomy. So I want to give you four very quick reflections on that theme. Um, it's probably come through, a lot of this is, is our issues that we've, we've touched on throughout our time together. If we engage with this work, it is not purely a rational experience that we can do here. When we explore events and understand, uh, in order to explore events and understand what happened better, it's not just here, it's here and in, and in your gut as well. It's a deeply emotional experience uh, in which your identity and the group that you belong to is invested in the outcome. Um, and nobody wants to be the scapegoat, the person who is part of the group whose fault it was. So before any historians get annoyed with me, um, what I am not saying is that facts aren't important or forensic knowledge is not important, it's really important, but it's how these facts are understood and from what perspective is where the rubber hits the road in a society with an identity-based conflict. One of our conversations yesterday is about whether teaching this stuff is a choice. And in Northern Ireland, people can choose to avoid it, but you can't choose to avoid living it. And that's part of the, the reality. My, my second reflection is, actually, you don't have to start with your own violent past. Uh, the use of distant case studies can provide you with both a window and a mirror into your own society. And so leaning on some of that facing history in ourselves um, methodology, we often explore the Holocaust or US civil rights, and we're developing a way of looking at and understanding the past through the everyday choices that citizens were making. And we are never saying, isn't it the same? We're not saying that. But what we're doing is asking people to make connections. So what meaning does that history have for us now? What questions does that history ask that are relevant for us in the here and now? It's about connections. So you don't have to start with your own violent past, but you need to come back to it at some point. But when you come back to it, hopefully you do so with a new vocabulary, a new approach, a new way of thinking. Uh, because the history that you're coming back to is something you're much closer to. It's a more emotionally close experience. Um, one of the things I've learned is about the wholeness of human behavior. So not just victims and perpetrators, one of the challenges in, in Northern Ireland, and I'm sure given the room we're in, everyone here responded to the UK government consultation on addressing the past in Northern Ireland. Um, a challenge is that the, the public debate has fixated on issues of victims and perpetrators. And that's really important. That it's some of the most painful stuff. But we also have to consider wider society. Who were the upstanders when all this was happening? Who was standing up for peace? Um, who were the bystanders, those that did very little good or very little bad, but perhaps created the space where terrible things happened. <coughs> so addressing the violent past is a task for everyone, 
not just the direct actors engaged in violence. And so exploring that violent past also has to be a, a task for everyone. Something that's come through is, is this idea of what's the purpose of the work that you're doing. Um, the risk of history and reconciliation uh, is that it becomes a kind of sanitised, whitewashed history where we only focus on periods where people got along or this idea of shared history. I'm not sure what that means. Um, for me, reconciliation work has to engage with difficult and divisive history because to do otherwise would be to ignore some of the core themes that continue to divide us in the present. And it's not easy, but it needs done. Now, I'm going to contradict myself slightly. I do believe there's merit in searching for times where some of our modern day assumptions are challenged, for moments where it seemed that there might be other possibilities, and to try and figure out why those possibilities didn't flourish. Um, so to put it another way, it's not actually for me about reconciling the past, but about understanding the past in order to reconcile the present. So the second part of my brief uh, was to explore how can positive identities grow out of forgiveness and peace building efforts today? What, if any, impact can community projects, including the arts, have on creating positive shared identities in post-conflict communities? So lunch is at one, so I'm gonna be brief. <laughs> So the, to go to the second part, what impact can community projects have? Given my background, here's a spoiler alert. The answer is a lot. Um, three thoughts on, on this question. We have to problematize the idea of positive identities. By implication, this means some people must have negative ones. Now, that might be an objective reality, but who wants to hear that your identity is negative? For me, it goes back to the, this idea of what's the purpose of your work in this area. And my experience in Northern Ireland is that this creates a quagmire. In identity-based conflicts, your identity becomes your sense of comfort and belonging and safety, all of which are fundamental human needs. And at the same time, your identity is a, is a potential source of threat towards you. You are at risk because of how you are perceived. So it's both a source of comfort and a risk. Secondly, your identity is part of your story. And if you change how we understand history, the role of your community, you're actually breaking away the foundations on which people have built their sense of self. And this is a scary, destabilizing place to be. So reconciliation work needs to take that into account. Put another way, the worst way to try and build positive identities is to try and change somebody's identity. Rather, I think you have to create the safe space where people can be critical of their own values and beliefs and have the resilience to make different decisions about how they view themselves and others. There's another bit that's been running through our conversations for me, which is around shame, shame and guilt, um, and how, when you might be on the wrong side of history, do you cope with that in the present? Um, all I know is that shame is debilitating, so I think we have to figure out some way of what responsibility can we take for what's happened before us without being um, kind of drowned by it? The second thing, which is kind of obvious, but identity is fluid and multifaceted. Uh, in identity-based conflicts, identities become really reductive. Um, people are reduced to their ethnic or religious or national labels. 
Um, in my work on this, we don't ignore those issues, but we try to understand the whole individual and how society shapes us. So our identity is not fixed, and in different contexts, we're different things. So five months ago, I became a father. And this is probably now the most important part of my identity. But as I stand before you now, I don't stand before you as a father. I'm standing here because of my work or from being from Northern Ireland. So that's the most important part of my identity. So these things are, are fluid. But in Northern Ireland, we didn't kill each other because of all our shared aspects of who we are. We did it because of our differences. Which leads me nicely to my third point. Um, I want to explore what we mean by shared identities. So in our context, in my context, could people in Northern Ireland move away from their sense of being British or Irish and embrace a shared identity of being Northern Irish? And there's some evidence to support that that has been happening, and this may be true for some people, and that might be very important. I am not convinced that that's the main issue here. Rather, I think that if we explore our histories together, we can come to some kind of place of understanding about our similarities, our differences, and our fears. So in an identity-based conflict, trying to replace our identities with some kind of transcendent identity may not be an option. Um, the arts, um, sorry, I should have slid that on. The only summary slides. The arts, um, I want to return to what I said about difficult histories being uh, not just a rational experience, but an emotional one. And this, for me, is where the arts come into their own. Um, the arts enable you to explore the past in a really holistic way, where you can engage your head, your heart, and maybe even your feet. And one of the proudest parts of my work has been the production of two films, one about upstanding and one about bystanding during the conflict in Northern Ireland. And they've led to conversations that have a depth to them that is hard to get with more traditional approaches. Another example, back to our centenaries, um, at Corrie Miller we commissioned a special play to reflect the end of the First World War um, back in November. And marking that anniversary in Northern Ireland or in Ireland is very different to marking it here. And so we had to be really careful about how we did this. So we had 214 year olds in Belfast City Hall for an event, and we, this, this one-man play told the story of, of returning after the First World War. You could have heard a pin drop, um, such was the level of engagement. Now, this was a piece of fiction, but it was based on historical themes and ideas that we know are, are true of the time, but it made it no less a meaningful way to understand the past. And in my work, I also bring in painting and poetry as a tremendous way of getting beyond the facts and into meaning. So, a little side point. Um, I was asked to look at forgiveness, and given the time constraints, I cannot get into that issue. So I'm just going to touch on it. My personal belief is that without forgiveness, we have little hope of sustaining peace. But forgiveness might be more straightforward when you have individual acts of violence, where someone who is hurt and someone has done the hurting. However, in transgenerational communal violence, that's a whole lot more complicated. And it raises the question of whose gift is it to forgive? So the last part of my brief, 
How can the phrase, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes, be helpful for understanding reconciliation and peace building as a means of safeguarding future generations from reliving these difficult histories? The, the short answer is very helpful. In Ireland, I think we've seen cycles of violence for longer than living memory. And I'm convinced the only way to break a cycle is to break it. And the only way to break it is to face up to it, understand it, and make different choices. Uh, and our work in Facing History Project in particular does just that. And that's why working with education systems is so important. When you work with teachers, you're working multi-generationally. Um, the average post-primary teacher will reach 15,000 young people in their careers. So there's a really important part there about how do generations talk to each other about difficult histories. Unfortunately, our government doesn't feel the same. When I say our government, we haven't had one for two years. Um, but if we did, they would be unsupportive. <laughs> so again, it's back to the purpose. Exploring the past, for me, has to be about building democracy and citizenship in the present. Um, I, I meet people, and I meet people involved in reconciliation work, who kind of proudly tell me that their kids know nothing about what happened in Northern Ireland and about Protestants and Catholics and all that stuff. And we want to protect our children. The way to protect them is not to not tell them about it. It's to tell them about it in a way which provides some kind of, of freedom to make different choices. Um, so, and that's an issue as a dad I'm going to have to face in the not too distant future. So I want to finish now um, to turn it back to the arts. Um, so I'm going to read you to finish two, uh, two stanzas from Seamus Heaney's poem, The Cure at Troy. History says, don't hope on this side of the grave. But then, once in a lifetime, the longed-for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope in history rhyme. So hope for a great sea change on the far side of revenge. Believe that a further shore is reachable from here. Believe in miracles and cures and healing wells. Thank you very much.